strange things happened while we worked, and the following story, which I've called The Snake, happened almost exactly as I've written it. I don't know what it means. The story was finally published, and one of my favorite pieces of fan mail came from a small-town librarian. She said it was the worst story she had ever read anywhere. She was quite upset at its badness. Actually, it isn't a story at all. It's just something that happened, and it goes this way. It was almost dark when young Dr. Phillips swung his sack to his shoulder and left the tide pool. He climbed up over the rocks and squashed along the street in his rubber boots. The street lights were on by the time he arrived at his little commercial laboratory on Cannery Street of Monterey. It was a tight little building standing partly on piers over the bay and partly on the land. On both sides, the big corrugated iron sardine canneries crowded in on it. Dr. Phillips climbed the wooden steps, opened the door. The white rats in their cages scampered up and down the wire, and the captive cats in their pens mewed for milk. Dr. Phillips turned on the glaring light over the dissection table and dumped his clammy sack on the floor. He walked to the glass cages by the window where the rattlesnakes lived, leaned over and looked in. The snakes were bunched and resting in the corners of the cage, but every head was clear, and the dusty eyes seemed to look at nothing. But as the young man leaned over the cage, the forked tongues, black on the ends and pink behind, twittered out and waved slowly up and down, and then the snakes recognized the man and pulled in their tongues. Dr. Phillips threw off his leather coat, built a fire in a tin stove. He set a kettle of water on the stove and dropped a can of beans into the water. Then he stood staring at the sack on the floor. He was a slight young man with a mild, preoccupied eye as of one who looks through a microscope a great deal. And he wore a short, blonde beard. The draft ran breathily up the chimney and a glow of warmth came from the stove. The little waves washed quietly among the piles into the building. Arranged on the shelves about the room were tier upon tier of museum jars containing the mounted marine specimens the laboratory dealt in. Dr. Phillips opened a side door, went to his bedroom, a book-lined cell containing an army cot, a reading light, and an uncomfortable wooden chair. He pulled off his rubber boots and put on a pair of sheepskin slippers. When he came back to the other room, the water in the kettle was beginning to hum. He lifted his sack to the table under the white light and emptied out two dozen common starfish. These he laid out side by side on the table. His preoccupied eyes turned to the busy rats in the wire cages. Taking grain from a paper sack, he poured it into the feeding trough, and instantly the rats scrambled down from the wire and fell on the food. A bottle of milk stood uh, on the glass shelf between two mounted octopi and uh, jellyfish. Dr. Phillips lifted down the milk, walked to the cat cage, but before he filled the containers, he reached in the cage and gently picked up a big rangy alley cat. He stroked her for a moment and then dropped her in a small black painted box, closed the lid and bolted it, and then turned on a pet cock, which had been gas to the killing chamber. While the short, soft struggle went on in the black box, he filled the saucers with milk. One of the cats arched against his hand, and he smiled and petted her neck. The box was quiet now. He turned off the pet cock, for the airtight box would be full of gas. On the stove, the pan of water was bubbling furiously about the can of beans. Dr. Phillips lifted out the can with a big pair of forceps, opened it, emptied the beans into a watch glass. While he ate, he looked at the starfish on the table. 
From between the rays, little drops of milky fluid were exuding. He bolted his beans, and uh, when they were gone, he put the dish in the sink and stepped to the equipment cupboard. From this, he took a microscope and a pile of little glass dishes. He filled the dishes one by one with seawater from a tap and arranged them in a line beside the starfish. He took out his watch, laid it on the table under the pouring white light. The waves washed with little sighs against the piles under the floor. He took an eyedropper from a drawer and bent over the starfish. At that moment, there were quick, soft steps on the wooden stairs and a strong knocking at the door. A grimace of annoyance crossed the young man's face as he went to open. A tall, lean woman stood in the doorway. She was dressed in a severe suit. Her straight black hair, growing low on a flat forehead, was mussed as though the wind had been blowing it. Her black eyes glittered in a strong light. She spoke in a soft, throaty voice. May I come in? I want to talk to you. I'm very busy just now, he said half-heartedly. I have things to do at times. And he stood away from the door. The tall woman slipped in. I'll be quiet till you can talk to me. He closed the door then, brought the uncomfortable chair from the bedroom. You see, he apologized. The process has started, and I've got to get to it. So many people wander in and ask questions, and I have to explain the common processes. He could tell them without thinking. Sit here, he said. In a few moments, I'll be able to listen to you. The tall woman leaned over the table. With the eyedropper, Dr. Phillips gathered fluid from between the rays of the starfish and squirted it into a bowl of the water. And then he drew some milky fluid and squirted it in the same bowl and stirred the water gently with the eyedropper. And he began his little tired patter of explanation. When starfish are sexually mature, they release sperm and ova when they're exposed at low tide. By choosing mature specimens and taking them out of water, I give them a condition of low tide. Now I've mixed sperm and ova. Now I put some of the mixture in each of these 10 watch glasses. In 10 minutes, I will kill the first with menthol. 20 minutes later, I will kill the second, then a new group every 20 minutes. When I have finished, I will have arrested the process in stages, and I will mount the series on microscope slides for biologic study. He paused. Would you like to look at this group under the microscope? No, thank you, she said. He turned quickly to her. People always wanted to look through the glass. She wasn't looking at the table at all, but at him. Her black eyes were on him, but they didn't seem to see him. He realized why the irises were as dark as the pupils. There was no color line between the two. Dr. Phillips was piqued at her answer, although answering questions bored him. A lack of interest in what he was doing irritated him. He wanted to arouse her. While I'm waiting the first 10 minutes, I have something to do. Some people don't like to see it. Maybe you'd better step into that room till I finish. No, she said in her soft, flat tone, do what you wish. I'll wait until you can talk to me. Her hands rested side by side on her lap. She was completely at rest. Her eyes were bright, but the rest of her was almost in a state of suspended animation. He thought low metabolic rate, almost as low as a frog's from the looks. And the desire to shock her out of her inanition possessed him again. He brought a little wooden cradle to the table, laid out scalpels and scissors, and rigged a big hollow needle to a pressure tube. Then from the killing chamber, he brought the limp dead cat, laid it on the cradle, and tied its legs to the hooks on the sides. He glanced sideways at the woman. She had not moved. She was still at rest. The cat grinned into the light. Its pink tongue stuck out between its needle teeth. Dr. Philip deftly snipped open the skin at the throat. With a scalpel, he cut through and found an artery. With flawless technique, he put the needle in the vessel, tied it with gut. 
embalming fluid, he explained. Later, I'll inject yellow mass into the venous system and red mass into the arterial system for bloodstream dissection. Low biology classes. He looked around at her again. Her dark eyes seemed veiled with dust. She looked without expression at the cat's open throat. Not a drop of blood had escaped. The incision was clean. Dr. Phillips looked at his watch. It's time for the first group. He shook a few crystals of menthol into the first watch glass. The woman was making him very nervous. The rats climbed about on the wire of their cages and squeaked softly. The waves under the building beat with little shocks on the piles. The young man shivered. He put a few lumps of coal in the stove and sat down. Now, he said, I haven't anything to do for 20 minutes. He noticed how short her chin was between upper lip and point. She seemed to awaken slowly, to come out of some deep pool of consciousness. Her head raised and her dark, dusty eyes moved about the room and came back to him. I was waiting, she said, and her hands remained side by side on her lap. You have snakes? Why, yes, he said rather loudly. I have two dozen rattlesnakes. I milk out the venom and send it to the anti-venom laboratories. She continued to look at him, but her eyes did not center on him. Rather, they covered him and seemed to see in a big circle all around him. Have you a male snake, a male rattlesnake? Well, it just happens I know I have. I came in one morning and found a big snake in, uh, in coition with a smaller one. That's very rare in captivity. You see, I do know I have a male snake. Where is he? Why, right in the glass cage by the window there. Her head swung slowly around, but her two quiet hands did not move. She turned back to him. May I see? He got up and walked to the case by the window. In the sand bottom of the cage, the knot of rattlesnakes lay entwined, but their heads stuck out clear. The tongues came out, flicked a moment, and waved up and down, feeling the air for vibrations. Dr. Phillips nervously turned his head. The woman was standing beside him. He had not heard her get up from her chair. He had heard only the splash of water among the piles and the scampering of rats. She said softly, which is the snake you spoke of? He pointed to a thick, dusty gray snake lying by itself in one corner of the cage. That one, he's nearly five feet long. He comes from Texas. Our Pacific Coast snakes are usually smaller. He's been taking all the rats, too. When I want the others to eat, I have to take him out. The woman stared down at the blunt, dry head. The forked tongue slipped out and hung and quivered for a long moment. And you're sure he's a male? Rattlesnakes are funny, he said glibly. Nearly every generalization proves wrong. I don't like to say anything definite about rattlesnakes, but yes, I can assure you he's a male. Her eyes did not move from the flat head. Will you sell him to me? Sell him, he said. Sell him to you. You do sell specimens, don't you? Oh, yes, yes, of course I do. Of course I do. How much? Five dollars? Ten? Oh, not more than five. But do you know anything about rattlesnakes? You might be bitten. She looked at him for a moment. I don't intend to take him. I want to leave him here. But I want him to be mine. I want to come here and look at him and feed him and know he's mine. She opened a little purse and took out a five-dollar bill. Here, now he's mine. Dr. Phillips began to be afraid. You could come in and look at him without owning him. I want him to be mine, she said. Oh, Lord, he cried, I've forgotten the time. And he ran to the table. Three minutes over. It won't matter much, he said. And he shook menthol crystals into the second watch glass. And then he was drawn back to the cage where the woman still stared at the snake. She asked, what does he eat? I feed them white rats, rats from the cage over there. Will you put him in the other cage? 
I want to feed him. He doesn't need food. He's had a rat already this week. Sometimes I don't eat for three or four months. I had one that didn't eat for over a year. In her low monotone, she asked, will you sell me a rat? He shrugged his shoulders. I see. You want to watch how rattlesnakes eat. All right, I'll show you. The rat will cost 25 cents. It's better than a bullfight if you look at it one way, and it's simply a snake eating his dinner if you look at it another way. His tone had become acid. He hated people who made a sport of natural processes. He was not a sportsman. He could kill a thousand animals for knowledge, but not an insect for pleasure. He'd been over this in his mind before. She turned her head slowly toward him, and the beginning of a smile formed on her thin lips. I want to feed my snake, she said. I'll put him in the other cage. She had opened the top of the cage and dipped her hand in before he knew what she was doing. He leaped forward and pulled her back, and the lid banged shut. Haven't you any sense, he said fiercely. Maybe he wouldn't kill you, but he'd make you damn sick in spite of what I could do for you. You put him in the other cage then, she said quietly. Dr. Phillips was shaken. He found that he was avoiding the dark eyes that didn't seem to look at anything. He felt it was profoundly wrong to put a rat into the cage, deeply sinful, and he didn't know why. Often he'd put rats in the cage when someone or other had wanted to see it, but this desire tonight sickened him. He tried to explain himself out of it. It's a good thing to see, he said. It shows you how a snake can work. It makes you have respect for a rattlesnake. Then, too, lots of people have dreams about the terror of snakes making the kill. I think because it is a subjective rat, the person is the rat. Once you see it, the whole matter is objective. The rat is only a rat, and the terror is removed. He took a long stick equipped with a leather noose from the wall, opened the trap, dropped the noose over the big snake's head, and tightened the thong. A piercing dry rattle filled the room. The thick body writhed and slashed about the handle of the stick as he lifted the snake out and dropped it in the feeding cage. It stood ready to strike for a time, but the buzzing gradually ceased, and the snake crawled into a corner, made a big figure eight with his body, and lay still. You see, Dr. Phillips explained, these snakes are quite tame. I've had them a long time. I suppose I could handle them if I wanted to, but everyone who does handle rattlesnakes gets bitten sooner or later. I just don't want to take a chance. He glanced at the woman. He hated to put in the rat. She'd moved over in front of the new cage, and her black eyes were on the stony head of the snake again. She said, put in a rat. Reluctantly, he went to the rat cage. He was sorry for the rat, and such a feeling had never come to him before. His eyes went over the mass of swarming white bodies climbing up the screen. Which one, he thought, which one should it be? And suddenly he turned angrily to the woman. Wouldn't you rather I put in a cat? Then you'd see a real fight. A cat might even win. But if it did, it might kill the snake. I'll sell you a cat if you like. She didn't look at him, put in a rat. She said, I want to see him eat. He opened the rat cage and thrust his hand in, and his fingers found a tail. He lifted a plump, red-eyed rat out of the cage. It struggled up to try to bite his fingers, and failing, hung spread out and motionless from its tail. He walked quickly across the room, opened the feeding cage, and dropped the rat on the sand floor. Now watch it, he cried. The woman didn't answer. Her eyes were on the snake where it lay still, its tongue flicking in and out, rapidly tasting the air of the cage. The rat landed on his feet, turned around, sniffed, at its pink naked tail and then unconcernedly trotted across the sand, smelling as it went. The room was silent. Dr. Phillips did not know whether the water sighed among the piles or whether the woman sighed. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw a body crouch and stiffen. The snake moved out smoothly, slowly. The tongue flicked in and out. The motion was so gradual, so smooth, 
that it didn't seem to be motion at all. In the other end of the cage, the rat perked up a little in a sitting position and began to lick down the fine white hair on his chest. The snake moved on, keeping always an S-curve in his neck. The silence beat on the young man. He felt the blood drifting up in his body. He said loudly, See, he keeps the striking curve ready. Rattlesnakes are cautious, almost cowardly. The mechanism is so delicate. The snake's dinner is to be got by an operation as deft as a surgeon's job. He takes no chances with his instruments. The snake had flowed to the middle of the cage by now. The rat looked up and saw the snake and then unconcernedly went back to licking its chest. It's the most beautiful thing in the world, the young man said, and his veins were throbbing. It's the most terrible thing in the world. The snake was very close now. Its head lifted a few inches from the sand. The head weaved slowly back and forth, aiming, getting distance, and aiming. Dr. Phillips glanced again at the woman, and he turned sick where she was weaving too, or just slightly weaving. The rat looked up and saw the snake. It dropped on four feet and backed up, and then the stroke. It was impossible to see, simply a flash. The rat jarred as though under an invisible blow. The snake backed hurriedly away into the corner from which it had come and settled down, its tongue working constantly. Perfect, Dr. Phillips cried, right between the shoulder blades. The fang must almost have reached the heart. Now the rat stood still, breathing, like a little white bellows. And suddenly it leaped in the air and landed on its side, and its legs kicked spasmodically a second, and it was dead. The woman relaxed, relaxed sleepily. Well, the young man demanded, it was an emotional bath, wasn't it? She turned her dusty eyes to him. Will he eat it now, she asked. Of course he'll eat it. He didn't kill her for a thrill. He killed her because he was hungry. The corners of the woman's mouth turned up a trifle again, and she looked at the snake. I want to see him eat it. Now the snake came out of its corner again. There was no striking curve in its neck but it approached the rat gingerly, ready to jump back in case it attacked. It nudged the body gently with its blunt nose and drew away. Finally satisfied that it was dead, the snake touched the body all over with its chin, from head to tail. It seemed to measure the body and to kiss it. Finally, it opened its mouth and unhinged its jaws at the corners. Dr. Phillips put his will against his head to keep it from turning toward the woman. He thought, if she's opening her mouth, I'll be sick afraid, and he succeeded in keeping his eyes away from her. The snake fitted its jaws over the rat's head and then, with a slow peristaltic pulsing, began to engulf the rat. The jaws gripped and the whole throat crawled up and the jaws gripped again. Dr. Phillips turned away and went to his work table. You've made me miss one of the series, he said bitterly. The set won't be complete. He put the watch glasses under the low-power microscope and looked at it. And then angrily, he poured the contents of all the dishes in the sink. The waves had fallen so that only a wet whisper came up from the floor. The young man lifted a trap door at his feet and dropped the starfish down into the black water. He paused at the cat, crucified on the cradle, and grinning comically into the light. His body was puffed with embalming fluid. He shut off the pressure, withdrew the needle, and tied the vein. Would you like some coffee, he asked. No, thank you. I shall be going pretty soon. He walked to her, where she stood in front of the snake cage. The rat was swallowed, all except an inch of pink tail that stuck out of the snake's mouth like a sardonic tongue. The throat heaved again, and the tail disappeared. The jaws snapped back in their sockets, and the big snake crawled heavily into a corner, made a big figure eight, and dropped its head on the sand. He's asleep now, the woman said. 
I'm going now. But I'll come back and I'll feed my snake every little while. I'll pay for the rats. I want him to have plenty. Sometime I'll take him away with me. Her eyes came out of their dusty dream for a moment. Remember, he's mine. Don't take his poison. I want him to have it. Good night. She walked swiftly to the door and went out. He heard her footsteps on the stairs, but he could not hear her walk away on the pavement. Dr. Phillips turned a chair around and sat down in front of the snake cage. He tried to comb out his thought as he looked at the torpid snake. I've read so much about psychological sex symbols, he thought. It doesn't seem to explain. Maybe I'm too much alone. Maybe I should kill the snake. If I knew... No, I can't pray to anything. For weeks, he expected her to return. I'll go out and leave her alone when she comes back, he decided. I won't see that damn thing again. But she never came again. For months, he looked for her when he walked about in the town. Several times, he ran after a tall woman, thinking it might be she. But he never saw her again, ever. This is a story about a monster named Johnny Bear. He really lived in Central California. I knew him. He caused a great deal of trouble before he was through. The village of Loma is built, as its name implies, on a low, round hill that rises like an island out of the flat mouth of the Salinas Valley in Central California. To the north and east of the town, a black tule swamp stretches for miles. But to the south, the marsh has been drained. Rich vegetable land has been the result of the draining, and the lettuce and cauliflowers grow to be giants. The owners of the swamp to the north of the village began to cover the black land. They banded together and formed a reclamation district. I uh, worked for a company that took the contract to put a ditch through. The floating clamshell dredger arrived, was put together, and started eating a ditch of open water through the swamp. There aren't more than 200 people in Loma. The Methodist Church has the highest place on the hill. Its spire is visible for miles. Two groceries, a hardware store, an ancient Masonic hall, and the Buffalo Bar, and that's Loma. On the side of the hills are the small wooden houses of the population, and on the rich southern flats are the houses of the landowners. Small yards, usually enclosed by high walls of clipped cypress to keep out the driving afternoon winds. There was nothing to do in Loma in the evening except to go to the saloon, an old board building with swinging doors and a wooden sidewalk awning. Neither prohibition nor repeal had changed its business, its clientele, nor the quality of its whiskey. In the course of an evening, every male inhabitant of Loma, over 15 years old, came at least once to the Buffalo Bar, had a drink, and talked a while and went home. Fat Carl, the owner and bartender, greeted every newcomer with a phlegmatic sullenness which nevertheless inspired familiarity and affection. His face was sour, his tone downright unfriendly. And yet, I don't know how he did it. I know I felt gratified and warm when Fat Carl knew me well enough to turn his 
pig face to me and say with impatience, what's it going to be? He always asked that, although he served only whiskey and only one kind of whiskey. I've seen him flatly refuse to squeeze some lemon juice into it for a stranger. Fat Carl didn't like fumadiddles. He wore a big towel tied around his middle, and he polished the glasses on it as he moved about. The floor was bare wood, sprinkled with sawdust, the bar an old store counter, and the chairs hard and straight. The only decorations were the posters and cards and pictures stuck to the wall by candidates for county elections, salesmen and auctioneers. Some of these were many years old. The card of Sheriff Rittell still begged for re-election, although Rittell has been dead for seven years. The Buffalo Bar sounds even to me like a terrible place, but when you walked down the night street over the wooden sidewalks, when the long streamers of swamp fog, like waving dirty bunting, slapped in your face, and when finally you pushed open the swinging doors of Fat Carl's and saw men sitting around talking and drinking, and Fat Carl coming along toward you, it seemed pretty nice. At least you couldn't get away from it. There'd be a game of the mildest kind of poker going on. Timothy Ratz would be playing solitaire, cheating pretty badly, because he took a drink only when he got it out. I've seen him get it out five times in a row. When he won, he piled the cards neatly, stood up, and walked with great dignity to the bar. Fat Carl, with a glass half-filled before he arrived, asked, What'll it be? Whiskey, said Timothy gravely. In the long room, men from the farms and the town sat in the straight hard chairs that stood against the wall counter. A soft, monotonous rattle of conversation went on, except at times of elections or prize fights, when there might be orations or loud opinions. Soon after my arrival in Loma, I scraped acquaintance with May Romero, a pretty half-Mexican girl. Sometimes in the evenings, I walked with her down to the south of the hill until the nasty fog drove us back into town. After I escorted her home, I dropped in at the bar for a while. I was sitting in the bar one night talking to Alex Hartnell, who owned a nice little farm. We were talking about bass fishing when the front door opened and swung closed. A hush fell on the men in the room. Alex nudged me and said, it's Johnny Bear. His name described him better than I can. He looked like a great stupid smiling bear. His black matted head bobbed forward and his long arms hung out as though he'd been on all fours and was only standing upright as a trick. His legs were short and bowed and ended with strange square feet. He was dressed in dark blue denim, but his feet were bare. They didn't seem to be crippled or deformed in any way. They were just squares, wide as they were long. He stood in the doorway, swinging his arms, the way half-wits do. On his face was a foolish, happy smile. He moved forward. For all his bulk and clumsiness, he seemed to creep. He didn't move like a man, but like a bear. At the bar, he stopped, and his little eyes went about from face to face, and he said, Whiskey, whiskey for Johnny? Lomo was not a treating town. A man might buy a drink for another if he were pretty sure the other would immediately buy one for him. I was surprised when one of the quiet men slid a coin down the counter. Fat Carl filled a glass. The monster took it and gulped the whiskey. What the devil, I began, and Alex nudged me and said, shh. There began a curious pantomime. Johnny Bear moved to the door and then he came creeping back. The smile never left his face. In the middle of the room, he crouched down on his stomach. And a voice came from his throat. The voice seemed familiar to me. You are too beautiful to live in a dirty little town like this. The voice rose to a soft, throaty tone with just a trace of accent in the words. You just tell me that. I nearly fainted. It was my own voice coming out of the throat of Johnny Bear. My own words, my own intonation. And then it was the voice of May Romero, exact. If I had not seen the crouching man on the floor, I would have called to her. And the dialogue went on. These things sound silly when somebody else says them. 
Johnny Bear went right on, or rather, I should say, I went right on. And he said things and made sounds. Gradually, the faces of the men turned from Johnny Bear and turned toward me, and they grinned at me. I couldn't do anything. I knew if I tried to stop him, I'd have a fight on my hands, so the scene went on to a finish. And when it was over, I was awfully glad Mayor Romero had no brothers. I think the men in the bar were sorry for me. They looked away from me and talked elaborately to one another. Johnny Bear went to the back of the room, crawled under a round card table, curled up like a dog, and went to sleep. Alex Hartnell was regarding me with compassion. First time you ever heard him? Yes, what in hell is he? Alex ignored my question for a moment. If you're worrying about May's reputation, don't. Johnny Bear's followed May before. But how did he hear us? I didn't see him. No one sees or hears Johnny Bear when he's on business. He can move like no movement at all. You know what our young men do when they go out with girls? They take a dog. Dogs are afraid of Johnny. They can smell him coming. But good God, those voices. Alex said, I know. Some of us wrote up to the university about Johnny. Young man came down, took a look, and he told us about Blind Tom. Did you ever hear of Blind Tom? No, I haven't. Well, Blind Tom was a Negro half-wit. He could hardly talk, but he could imitate anything he heard on the piano. Long pieces. They tried him with musicians. And he reproduced not only the music, but every little personal emphasis. To catch him, they made little mistakes, and he played the mistakes. He photographed the playing in the tiniest detail. The man says Johnny Bear is the same, only he photographs words and voices. He tested Johnny with a passage in Greek, and Johnny did it exactly. He doesn't know the words he's saying, he just says them. He hasn't brains enough to make anything up, so you know what he says is true. Why does he do it? Why is he interested in listening if he doesn't understand? He isn't, said Alex. He loves whiskey. He knows if he listens in windows and comes and repeats what he hears, somebody will give him a whiskey. I said, it's funny somebody hadn't shot him while he was speaking in the window. Alex picked up his cigarette. Lots of people have tried, but they just don't see Johnny Bear. You can't catch him. You keep your windows closed, and even then you're talking a whisper if you don't want to be repeated. You were lucky it was dark tonight. If he'd seen you, he might have gone through the action. I looked at the sprawled figure under the table. The light fell on his black matted hair. I saw a big fly land on his head, and then I swear I saw the whole scalp shiver the way the skin of a horse shivers when a fly lands on it. The fly landed again, and the moving scalp shook it off again. Conversation in the room had settled to a bored monotone. Alex beside me said, uh, have a drink. We walked to the counter, and Fat Carl put out two glasses. What'll it be? Carl's head twitched back toward the card table. He got you, didn't he? I winked at him. I'll take a dog next time. Johnny Bear rolled over on his stomach. His face looked out at the room. And he came sliding out like an animal. Whiskey? Whiskey? It was like a bird call. Whiskey? The conversation in the room started, but nobody came forward with money. Johnny Bear smiled plaintively. Whiskey? And then he tried to cozen them. Out of his throat, an angry woman's voice issued. I tell you, it was all bone. Twenty cents a pound and all bone. And then a man. Yes, ma'am, I didn't know it. I'll give you some sausage to make it up. Whiskey? But none of the men offered to come forward. Johnny crept to the front of the room and crouched. I said, what's he doing? Alex said, shh. A woman's voice came, a cold, sure voice. The words clipped. I don't understand it. Are you some kind of monster? I wouldn't have believed if I hadn't seen you. And another woman's voice answered her, a voice low and hoarse. Maybe I am a monster. I can't help it. You must help it, the cold voice broke in. You'd be better dead. A soft sobbing came from the thick, smiling lips of Johnny Bear. 
All the men were stiff and listening. The sobbing stopped. Haven't you ever felt that way, Emmeline? The cold voice announced, certainly not. Never in the night, never ever in your life. If I had, said the cold voice, if I ever had, I'd cut that part of me away. Stop your whining, Amy. I won't stand it. Go to your prayers. Johnny Bear smiled on and said, Whiskey? And he smiled at the room, and then he went out with that creeping gait of his. Conversation didn't spring up again. Everyone in the room seemed to have a problem to settle in his own mind. One by one, they drifted out, and the back swing of the doors brought in little puffs of tule fog. Alex got up and walked out, and I followed him. The night was nasty with fog. It seemed to cling to the buildings, to reach out with free arms into the air. I doubled my pace and caught up with Alex. What is it, I demanded? What is all that about? For a moment, I thought he wouldn't answer, but then he stopped and he turned to me. Oh, damn it, listen. Every town has its aristocrats. It's a family above reproach. Emmeline and Amy Hawkins are our aristocrats. Their father was a congressman. I don't know why Johnny does this. They feed him. We shouldn't give him whiskey. I asked, are they relatives of yours? No, but they're, they aren't like other people. They've had, they have the farm next to mine. Two maiden ladies, some Chinese farmed on shares. Why, the Hawkins women, they're symbols. They're what we tell our kids we want, uh, when we want to describe good people. Well, I protested. Nothing Johnny Bear said would hurt them, would it? I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to bed, he said. About eight the next morning, I walked down across the swamp to the dredger. The crew was busy bending some new wire to the drums and coiling the worn cable for removal. I looked over the job and at 11 o'clock walked back to Loma. In front of Mrs. Ratt's uh, boarding house, Alex Hartnell sat in a Model T Ford touring car. He called to me. I was just going out to the dredger to get you. I knocked off a couple of chickens this morning. Thought you might like to come and help with them. I accepted joyfully. As we drove along the road, Alex shouted, Remember about the Hawkinses? Of course I remember. He pointed ahead. That's their house. Little of the house could be seen for a high, thick hedge of cypress surrounded it. It must be a small garden inside the square, too. Only the roof and the tops of the windows showed over the hedge. I could see the house was painted tan, trimmed with dark brown, a combination favored for railroad stations and schools in California. There were two wicket gates in front and side of the hedge. The hedge was clipped square, and it looked strong and thick. It keeps the wind out, Alex shouted. Doesn't keep Johnny Bear out, I said. He waved at a whitewashed square building standing out in the field. That's where the chink sharecroppers live. At that moment, from behind the corner of the hedge, a horse and buggy turned into the road. The gray horse was old but well-groomed, and the buggy shiny and the harness polished. There was a big silver H on the outside of each blinder. It seemed to me that the check rein was too short for such an old horse. Alex said, there they are now on their way to church. We took off our hats and bowed to the women as they went by, and they nodded formally to us. I had a good look at them. They looked almost exactly as I thought they would. Johnny Bear was more monstrous than I had known, if by the tone of voice he could describe the features of people. I didn't have to ask which was Emmeline, which was Amy. The clear, straight eyes, the sharp chin, the mouth cut with the precision of a diamond, the stiff, curveless figure, that was Emmeline. Amy was very like her, but unlike her edges were soft, her eyes were warm, and her mouth full. And there was a swell to her breast, and yet she did look like Emmeline. But whereas Emmeline's mouth was straight by nature, Amy held her mouth straight. Emmeline must have been 50 or 55, and Amy maybe 10 years younger. 
I had only a moment to look at them, and I never saw them again. A place like Loma, with its fogs, with its great swamp, like a hideous sin, really needed the Hawkins women. I could see that. It was a good dinner at Alex's. His sister fried the chicken and butter and did everything else right. And we sat around in the dining room and drank really good brandy. I said, I don't see why we ever go to the Buffalo. That whiskey is... I know it is, said Alex. But the Buffalo is the mind of Loma. It's a newspaper. It's our club. This was so true that when Alex started the Ford and prepared to take me back, I knew and he knew that we would go for an hour or two to the Buffalo Bar. We were nearly into town. The feeble lights of the car splashed about on the road. Another car rattled toward us, and Alex swung across the road and stopped. It's Dr. Holmes, he explained. The oncoming car pulled up because it couldn't get around us. Alex called, say, Doc, I was going to ask you to take a look at my sister. She's got a swelling on her throat. Dr. Holmes called back, all right, Alex, I'll take a look, but pull out, will you? I'm in a hurry. Alex was delivered. Who's sick, Doc? Why, Miss Amy had a little spell. Get out of the way, will you? We drove on. I was about to remark that the night was clear. When looking ahead, I saw rags of fog creeping around the hill from the swamp side and climbing like slow snakes on top of Loma. The Ford shuddered to a stop in front of the buffalo, and we went in. Fat Carl moved toward us, wiping a glass, and he reached under the bar for the nearby bottle. What'll it be, he asked. Whiskey. For a moment, a smile seemed to flit on his sullen, fat face. The room was full. My dredger crew was there, even. But it was the quietest bar I ever saw. Somehow the sullen, baleful eyes of Fat Carl made drinking a quiet, efficient business. Timothy Ratz was playing solitaire at one of the round tables. The doors unfolded silently and Johnny Bear crept in. His square feet were like cat's feet. Whiskey chirped and no one encouraged him. He went down on his stomach the way he had got me. And sing-song nasal words came out. Chinese, I thought. And then it seemed to me that the same words were repeated in another voice, slower, not nasally. Johnny Bear raised his shaggy head and he asked, Whiskey? I slid a quarter along the bar and Johnny gulped his drink. And the chill voice of Ameline said, She's in here, Doctor. You said a fainting fit. Yes, Doctor. There was a little pause and then the doctor's voice very softly. Why did she do it, Ameline? Why did she do what? I'm your doctor, Emmeline. I was your father's doctor. Don't you think I've seen that kind of mark before? How long was she hanging? There was a longer pause then. The chill left the woman's voice. Two or three minutes. Will she be all right? Oh, yes, she'll come around. Why did she do it? The answering voice was even colder than it had been at first. I don't know, sir. You mean you won't tell me? I mean what I say. Then the doctor's voice went on, giving directions for treatment, rest, milk, and a little whiskey. Above all, be gentle, he said. Be gentle with her. Emmeline's voice trembled a little. You would never tell, doctor? Of course I won't tell. I'll send you some sedatives. Whiskey, and my eyes jerked open, and there was the horrible Johnny Bear smiling around the room. The next morning, when those series of accidents so common in construction landed on us, one of the new wires parted on the in-swing and dropped the bucket on one of the pontoons, sinking it and the works in eight feet of ditch water. When we dropped a dead man and got a line out to it to pull us from the water, the line parted and clipped the legs neatly off one of the deckhands. We bound the stumps and rushed him to Salinas. My contact with the social life of Loma went to pot for a while, but when the bucket was banging in the mud again, 
and the big diesel was chattering away in the swamp, I walked up to Alex Hartnell's farm one night. Passing the Hawkins place, I peered in through one of the little wicket gates in the cypress hedge. The house was dark, more dark, because a low light glowed in one window. There was a gentle wind that night blowing balls of fog like tumbleweeds along the ground. I walked in the clear a moment and then was swallowed in the mist. And then it was clear again. In the starlight, I could see the silver fog balls moving like elementals across the fields. When I came suddenly out of the fog, I saw a dark figure hurrying along in the field, and I knew from the dragging footsteps it must be one of the Chinese field hands walking in sandals. Alex seemed glad to see me. His sister was away. I sat down at his stove, and he brought out a bottle of that nice brandy. I heard you were having some trouble, he said. Yeah, the men have got figured out accidents come in groups of three, five, seven, and nine. Alex nodded. I feel that way myself. How are the Hawkins sisters, I asked. He didn't want to talk about them, and at the same time, he wanted to talk about them. I stepped over about a week ago. Miss Amy isn't feeling very well. I didn't see her. I only saw Miss Emmeline. You almost seem to be related to them, I said. Well, their father and my father were friends. We called the girls Aunt Amy and Aunt Emmeline. They can't do anything bad. It wouldn't be good for any of us if the Hawkins sisters weren't the Hawkins sisters. The community conscience, I asked. The safe thing, he said. The place where a kid can get gingerbread. They believe in the things we hope are true, and they live as though, uh, well, as though honesty really is the best policy and charity really is its own reward. And he said, Miss Emmeline is fighting something, and I don't think she's going to win. What do you mean? I don't know what I mean. Oh, I should shoot Johnny Bear and throw him in the swamp. It's not his fault. I walked back to Loma. It seemed to me that the fog was clinging to the cypress hedge of the Hawkins house, and it seemed to me also that a lot of the fog balls were clustered about it, and others were moving slowly in. In the evening of the second day after my visit to Alex, I walked down the wooden sidewalk, trailing a streamer of fog behind me, and went into the Buffalo Bar. Fat Carl came toward me, and I cried whiskey before he had a chance to ask what it would be. I took my glass and went to one of the straight chairs. Alex was not there. At about 10 o'clock, the news came. Miss Amy committed suicide. She'd hanged herself. The swinging doors opened slowly, and there was Johnny Bear creeping in. And he said, whiskey, whiskey for Johnny. Fat Carl poured him a drink quickly, and Johnny Bear gulped it. The doctor's tone was harsh. Where is she, Emmeline? I've never heard a voice like the one that answered cold control, layer and layer of control. She's in here, doctor. Hmm. A long pause. She was hanging quite a while. I don't know how long, doctor. Why did she do it, Emmeline? The monotone again. I don't know, doctor. A longer pause, and then, Emmeline, did you know she was going to have a baby? Yes, doctor. Is that why you didn't find her for so long? No, Emmeline, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. Can you make out a certificate without mentioning it? Of course I can. I'll speak to the undertaker, too. Thank you, doctor. And whiskey for Johnny, whiskey. Fat cop poured another glass, and Johnny Bear drank it, and then crept to the back of the room and crawled under the table and went to sleep. No one spoke. The men moved up to the bar and laid down their coins silently. They looked bewildered, for a system had fallen. 
A few minutes later, Alex came into the silent room and he walked quickly over to me. You've heard, he said softly. Yes. I said, did you know she was pregnant? Alex stiffened. He looked around the room and then back at me. Johnny Berry asked. I nodded. Alex ran his palm over his eyes. I don't believe it. I was about to answer when I heard a little scuffle and looked to the back of the room and saw Johnny Bear crawl like a badger out of his hole. He came to the bar. Whiskey, he said, and he smiled expectantly at Fat Carl. Then Alex stepped out, and he said, Now, you guys listen. I've had enough of this. I don't want any more of it. Whiskey for Johnny? Alex turned on the idiot. You ought to be ashamed. Miss Amy gave you food. She gave you all the clothes you ever had. And Johnny smiled at him and said, Whiskey? He got out his tricks, and I heard again the sing-song nasal language that sounded like Chinese. Alex looked relieved. And then the other voice, slow, hesitant, repeating the words, but without the nasal quality. Alex moved so quickly. Very dangerous revolutionary. The communists of our day are about as revolutionary as the daughters of the American Revolution. Having accomplished their coup and established their empire, revolution is their nightmare. They have had to hunt down and eliminate everyone with the slightest revolutionary tendency, even those who helped to accomplish their own. Where they have absolute power, they have established the most reactionary governments in the world, governments so fearful of revolt that they must make every man an informer against his fellows and layer their society with secret police. And like most insecure organizations, they must constantly enlarge to cover the fact that they are unsound. Any other group following their pattern, they would call imperialistic. Me and my work they do not like and have eliminated where they've had that power. My books are forbidden entrance to the Soviet centers, not because they are not revolutionary, but because they are. Indeed, any criticism is construed as revolt by the two great wings of reaction. The fate of the Marxist movement was that once free of bourgeois control, the masses would cease to be masses and would emerge as individuals. Authority and power would then melt away. This dream has long since been abandoned, except in the baited areas. Far from disappearing, power and oppression have increased. The so-called masses are more lumpen than ever. Any semblance of the emergence of the individual is instantly crushed, and the doctrine of party and state above everything has taken the place of the theory of liberated men. The victim of this savagely applied system is the individual. Individuality must be destroyed because it is dangerous to all reactionary plans, because the individual is creative, and creativeness outside the narrow pattern of status quo cannot be tolerated. Herein is my revolt. I believe in and will fight for the right of the individual to function as an individual without pressure from any direction. I am unalterably opposed to any interference to the creative mind. It may be wrong, but out of it come the only rights we know. I am opposed to these pressures and constrictions no matter where they arise, in my own country or in any other. This is true revolt not the robo-chanting of brainwashed zombies. I realize the necessity for brainwashing. Thought must be washed out, for thought is the present danger to and the inevitable destroyer of reaction. The greatest and most permanent revolution we know took place when men finally discovered 
that they had individual souls individually important. This concept permanently changed the face of the world. But it has another step to go. The release of the individual mind to a sense not only of its importance, but of its preciousness, will cause an even greater change. Such a revolution is on the way. No system of policing and conditioning can long survive. And I place myself at the service of this revolutionary cause. The minds of individual men must and will be free. This is a scene from a novel called Indubious Battle. It's um, a description by a doctor of the reason he works with people without uh, compensation. And he says, I believe in men. What do you mean? I don't know. I guess I just believe they're men, not animals. Maybe if I went into a kennel and the dogs were hungry and sick and dirty, and maybe if I could help those dogs, I would. Wouldn't be their fault they were that way. You couldn't say those dogs are that way because they haven't any ambition. They don't save bones. Dogs always are that way. No, you try to clean them up and feed them. I guess that's the way it is with me. I have some skill in helping men and when I see some who need help, I just do it. I don't think about it much. If a painter saw a piece of canvas and had colors, well, he'd want to paint on it. He wouldn't figure why he wanted to. from east of Eden. The causes lie deep and simply. The causes are a hunger in the stomach multiplied a million times, a hunger in a single soul, hunger for joy and some security. Multiplied a million times, muscles and mind aching to grow, to work, to create, multiplied a million times. The last clear, definite function of man, muscles aching to work, minds aching to create beyond the single need, this is man. To build a wall, to build a house, a dam, and in that wall and house and dam to put something of man's self, and to man's self take back something of the wall, the house, the dam, to take hard muscles from the lifting, to take clear lines and form from conceiving. For man, unlike any other thing, organic or inorganic in the universe, grows beyond his work, walks up the stairs of his concepts, emerges ahead of his accomplishments. This you might say of man. When theories change and crash, when schools, philosophies, when narrow, dark alleys of thought, national, religious, economic, grow and disintegrate, man reaches, stumbles forward, painfully, mistakenly sometimes. Having stepped forward, he may slip back, but only half a step, never the full step back, unless you may say and know it and know it.
This is a description of the mother of a family, and it's from the Grapes of Wrath. Ma was heavy, but not fat, thick with childbearing and work. She wore a loose Mother Hubbard of gray cloth in which there had once been colored flowers, but the color was washed out now, so that the small flowered pattern was only a lighter gray than the background. The dress came down to her ankles, and her strong, broad, bare feet moved quickly and deftly over the floor. Her thin, steel-gray hair was gathered in a sparse, wispy knot at the back of her head. Strong, freckled arms were bare to the elbow, and her hands were chubby and delicate, like those of a plump little girl. She looked out into the sunshine. Her full face was not soft. It was controlled and kindly. Her hazel eyes seemed to have experienced all possible tragedy and to have mounted pain and suffering like steps into a high, calm, and superhuman understanding. She seemed to know, to accept, to welcome her position. The citadel of the family, the strong place that could not be taken. And since old Tom and the children could not know hurt or fear, Unless she acknowledged hurt and fear, she had practiced denying them in herself. And since when a joyful thing happened, they looked to see whether joy was on her, it was her habit to build up laughter out of inadequate materials. But better than joy was calm. Imperturbability could be depended on. And from her great and humble position, in the family she had taken dignity and a clean, calm beauty. From her position as healer, her hands had grown sure and cool and quiet. From her position as arbiter, she had become as remote and faultless in judgment as a goddess. She seemed to know that if she swayed, the family shook, and if she ever really deeply wavered or despaired, the family would fall. The family will to function would be gone. This is another section from uh, East of Eden. Our species is the only creative species, and it has only one creative instrument, the individual mind and spirit of a man. Nothing was ever created by two men. There are no good collaborations, whether in music, in art, in poetry, in mathematics, in philosophy. Once the miracle of creation has taken place, the group can build and extend it, but the group never invents anything. The preciousness lies in the lonely mind of a man. And now the forces marshaled around the concept of the group have declared a war of extermination on that preciousness, the mind of a man. By disparagement, by starvation, by repression, forced direction, and the stunning hammer blows of conditioning, the free roving mind is being pursued, roped, blunted, drugged. It is a sad, suicidal course our species seems to have taken. And this I believe, that the free, exploring mind of the individual human is the most valuable thing in the world. And this I would fight for, the freedom of the mind to take any direction it wishes, undirected. And this I must fight against, any idea, religion, or government which limits or destroys the individual. This is what I am and what I am about. 
I can understand why a system built on a pattern must try to destroy the free mind, for that is one thing which can, by inspection, destroy such a system. Surely I can understand this, and I hate it, and I will fight against it to preserve the one thing that separates us from the uncreative beasts. If the glory can be killed, we are lost. Brother-in-law, 
Well, why don't we join up with those tree people? They got a net kind of thing. Catch all sorts of animals. They eat better than we do. Son, said old William, they live in trees. We can't associate with savages. How'd you like your sister to marry a savage? She did, said Joe. And then he went on, we could have them come and live in our cave. Maybe they'd show us how to use that net thing. Never, said old Bert. We couldn't trust them. Why, they might eat us in our sleep. If we didn't eat them first, said Joe. I sure would like to have me a nice juicy piece of savage right now. I'm hungry. Next thing you know, you'll be saying those three people are as good as us, old William said. Never saw such a boy. Why, where'd authority be? Those foreigners would take over. Why, we'd have to look up to them. And they'd outnumber us, too. Ah, hate to tell you this, said Joe. I've got a busted arm. I can't dig any kits anymore. And neither can you. You're too old. Bert can't either. We've got to kind of merge up with those three people, or we aren't going to eat anything or anybody. Over my dead body, said old William. And then he saw Joe's eyes on his skinny flank, and he said, Now, Joe, don't go getting ideas about your pa. Well, a long time ago, before the tribe first moved out of the drippy cave, there was a great man named Elmer. He piled up some rocks in a circle and laid brush on top. And he took to living in there. The elders looked it over, and they killed Elmer right off. If anybody could go and live by himself, why, where would authority be? But pretty soon, those elders moved into Elmer's house. And then the other families made houses just like it. And it was pretty nice with no water dripping in your face. So they made Elmer a god. He used to swear by him. Said he was the moon. Everything was going along fine when another tribe moved into the valley. They didn't have Elmer houses, though. The shacks up in skin tents. But you know, they had a funny kind of a gadget that shot little sticks. Shot them a long way. Where they could just stand still and pick off a pig old 50 yards away. Didn't have to run it down and maybe get a tusk in the groin. That skin tribe shot so much game that naturally the Elmer elders said those savages had to be got rid of. Why, they didn't even know about Elmer. That's how ignorant they were. So the old people sharpened a lot of sticks and fired the points, and they said, uh, now you young fellas go out and drive those skin people away. You can't fail because you've got Elmer on your side. Now it seems that a long time ago there was a skin man named Max. He thought up this stick shooter, so they killed him naturally. But afterwards, they said he was the son. So it was a war between Elmer the Moon and Max the Sun. But in the course of it, a whole slew of young skin men and a whole slew of young Elmer men got killed. Then a forest fire broke out and drove the game away. So Elmer people and skin people had to take to the hills altogether. The elders of both tribes never did accept it, though. They complained right until they died. You can see from this that the world started going to pot right from the beginning. Things would be going along fine, law and order and all that, elders in charge, and then some smart aleck would invent something and spoil the whole business. 
Like the man Ralph who forgot to kill all the wild chickens he caught and had to build a hen house. Or like the real troublemaker, Jojo Franducher, who padded some seeds into damp ground and invented farming. Of course, they tore his arms and legs off, and rightly so, because when people plant seeds, they can't go golly whacking around the country enjoying themselves. When you've got a crop in, you stay with it and get the weeds out of it and harvest it. Furthermore, everything and everybody wants to take the crop away from you. Weeds, bugs, birds, animals, men. The farmer spent all his time fighting something off. The elders can call on Elmer all they want, but that won't keep the neighbors from over the hill out of your cornfield. Well, there was a strong boy named Rudolph, but called Bugsy. Bugsy would break his back wrestling, but he wouldn't bring in an armload of wood. Bugsy just naturally liked to fight, and he hated to work. So he said, you men just plant your crops and don't worry. I'll take care of them. If anybody bothers you, I'll clobber them. You can give me a few chickens and a couple of handfuls of grits for my trouble. The elders blessed Bugsy, and pretty soon they got him mixed up with Elmer, and Bugsy went right along with him. He gathered a dozen strong boys and built a fort up on the hill to take care of those farmers and their crops. for people to make more things than they need. 
Now, it happens often enough, so you can make a rule about it. There's always going to be a joker. This one was named Harry, and he said, those ignorant pigs over the hill don't have any willows, so they don't have any baskets. But you know what they do? Ignorant and benighted though they are, they take mud and pat it out and put it in the fire, and you can boil water in it. I'll bet if we took them some baskets, they'd give us some of those baked mud pots. Of course, they had to hang Harry head down over a bonfire. Nobody can put a knife in the status quo and get away with it. But it wasn't long before the basket people got to sneaking over the hill and coming back with pots. Bugsy tried to stop it, and the elders were right with him. It took people away from the fields, exposed them to dangerous ideas. Why, pots got to be like money, and money's worse than an idea. Bugsy himself said it makes people restless. Why, it makes a man think he's as good as the ones that got it a couple of generations earlier. And how's that for being on Elmer? The elders agreed with Bugsy, of course, but they couldn't stop it, so they all had to join it. Bugsy took half the pots they brought back, and pretty soon he took over the Willow Confession, so he got the whole thing. At about that time, some savages moved up on the hill, and they got to raiding the basket and pot trade and ruined the business. The only thing to do was for Bugsy the Basket to marry the daughter of Willie the Pot. And when they all died off, Herman the Pot Basket pulled the whole business together and made a little state, and that worked out fine. Well, it went on from state to league and from league to nation. A nation usually had some kind of natural boundary, like an ocean or a mountain range or a river, to keep it from spilling over. It worked out fine until a bunch of jokers invented long-distance stuff, or like uh, directed missiles, an atom bomb. And then a uh, river or an ocean didn't do a bit of good. It got too dangerous to have separate nations, just as it's been too dangerous to have separate families. When people are finally faced with extinction, they have to do something about it. Now, we've got the United Nations, and the elders are right in there fighting it the way they fought coming out of caves. But we don't have any choice about it. It isn't goodness of heart. We may not want to go ahead, but right from the cave time, we've had to choose. And so far, we've never chosen extinction. It would be kind of silly if we killed ourselves off after all this time. If we do, we're stupidest in the cave season. And I don't think we are. I think we're just exactly as stupid. And that's pretty bright in the long run. Seems to me that's pretty bright.